Okay, I think uh, congratulations are in order. Um, the first panel was very, um, very effective in giving us a wonderful um, overview of this uh, very complex period. So the next panel is the uh, Religious History and History of Science panel, and uh, we have Ronnie Shaw um, uh, from uh, Religious History from the History Department, and uh, Bettina Matis, um, who is a specialist on the history of science and technology. Well, let me begin the conversation. I think I will say something and then introduce Martina. And perhaps we'll get into the conversation, perhaps not. Unlike the first panel, we did not rehearse. We thought we'll see how things go at this moment. But I'll start with the year 1600. In 1600, an Italian went to China. And in that year, he managed to get to Beijing. And this was uh, the Jesuit missionary, Matteo Ricci. Now, he didn't arrive in China in 1600. He actually had gotten there 17 years ago. But it took him a very long time to um, go from Macau, where he landed, which was a Portuguese colony, all the way to where the emperor of the Ming Dynasty was. So it was a road not only of geographical ascent from south to north, but socially as well, as he became proficient enough in his learning in Chinese in the process of which, there were 17 years, publishing for the first time a world map in Chinese. Now, this was possible by the year 1600, because one generation before Ricci, the first modern world maps were, for the first time, printed in Europe with the knowledge of the discoveries. Ricci was not the first Westerner to have arrived in Beijing. Several centuries ago, the Italian, another Italian, uh, had already been there. Of course, I'm talking about Marco Polo. But Polo, Marco Polo never left any uh, long-term legacy, unlike Ricci and his fellow Jesuits. For one of the things he brought to China was not so much Christianity, which the Chinese were not terribly interested in, but rather the knowledge of Western science. Between the death of Ricci in 1610, when he was given an imp imperial funeral, the only Westerner to have given an imperial funeral in China, and the end of our period under consideration, 1625, we have now the beginnings of Jesuit scientists and astronomers who would be present in Beijing until the early 19th century. One of the things they constructed during these years was an observatory in Beijing with Western astronomical instruments. But of course, the, which you can still see today if you go and visit Beijing with the original instruments there. Now, obviously, the skies of Beijing in, 16, in the 1620s were somewhat more propitious for observation than today. But the whole point was that in the 25 years under consideration, we have a number of Western scientific works translated into Chinese. And I'll just um, run off a few titles by you. The Elements of Euclid was translated and published in Chinese in 1607. The Applied Geometry, 1608. Um, practical Arithmetic, 1614. Um, Rebidology in 1628, which is a book by the English mathematician John Napier, 
who is, of course, uh, for those of you who are as old as I am or older, you may remember him for his logarithm tables, which we had to learn in high school. And of all people, Galileo, a great Italian scientist, but not his more famous and controversial works, but rather a work on the geometric and military compass, which was published in 1630. And then finally, a work on trigonometry at the end of our period. Now, one may wonder, why would a religious missionary be so well-versed, I mean, Ritchie and many of his uh, fellow Jesuits in the sciences? Many of these books were, in fact, written by Ritchie's teacher in Rome, the Jesuit scientist Christopher Clavius, who actually was the man most responsible for giving us our calendar today, the calendar that we use, the Gregorian calendar, which is slightly different and a more accurate calendar than the calendar that was used in Europe ever since Roman times, the Julian calendar. So that, in a very specific way, is the dating of modernity in terms of the using of the calendar. When Ritchie went to Beijing, he went to China, he met fellow scientists, obviously the Chinese, but some of these Chinese were in fact Muslims who had practiced Islamic science in China, which is a topic which was perhaps uh, unusual for Ritchie, but perhaps not so unusual if we look at the larger consequence. And I think Bettina would pick up this story about the connections between European science and Islamic science. Yeah, thank you very much for your sort of introduction. I don't know much about China, but what is what I would like to know more about uh, after I'll give you a few facts about Islam and, and, and Christian sciences. How did the, 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 the Chinese, what did the Chinese do with this Western knowledge? Uh, but let me, since I prepared this, uh, show you some images. And the, the subtitle, The Rewards of European Backwardness, is stolen from a book by uh, John Hobson, The Eastern Origin of Western, of the West, or The Eastern Origins of, of Western Civilization. And I think it's quite, and, and one of the chapters, he talks about the rewards of, of uh, European backwardness. So let me just, uh, in one slide, uh, show you the main heroes of the, the, uh, the early 17th century. We have Galileo most or best known for the, the use of the telescope, for his uh, support of Copernicus and the heliocentric model, and of course the controversy with the Roman church. And it's interesting that the Chinese were interested in Galileo, but the Europeans were not so much interested in him and uh, forced him to uh, recant. Then there's Kepler, Johannes Kepler, um, also a follower of uh, Copernicus, uh, best known for his uh, laws of the, the planetary motions. Of course, we have to mention Francis Bacon. He seems to be, I mean, we remember him as the father of the scientific method. Um, these are two works that he wrote. And then there's William Harvey, um, who uh, we think of as the discoverer of the, uh, the blood circulation and the pulmonary circulation. Um, and that's the, the title of the book. Now, I would like to take a moment and change the perspective a little bit and come and now come back to Islam, because what is, uh, uh, because the question is, first of all, what does it mean that those discoverers and uh, famous fellows are all male? And uh, none of those, what we call breakthrough innovations, were really new at the time. 
Uh, why were they not new? Because um, Islamic science and Islamic medicine, Islamic uh, mathematics had made those discoveries centuries, many centuries ago. So the question is, why is it that we remember Galileo but we do not remember Jafar al-Sadiq, an 8th century astronomer, imam, Islamic theologian, who already refuted the geocentric model and suggested a heliocentric model. We've forgotten uh, about this guy. Uh, we chose to remember Galileo. Um, why is it that we remember William Harvey, but we do not remember Ibn al-Nafis, um, also an Islamic scholar, who already in the 13th century discovered uh, blood circulation and the pulmonary circulation. And Europeans could have known about this because his work was uh, translated into Latin. Um, but, and in 1925, an Egyptian scholar in Berlin in the Staatsbibliothek discovered a manuscript. Um, and he published a book on it. And still we, we think that it's William Harvey who discovered uh, blood circulation. And then the last uh, question, why is it that we remember Francis Bacon, but we do not remember Ibn al-Haytham, uh, the father of optics, but also the Islamic father of uh, the scientific method. And what I would like to propose, and, and then maybe I think we could enter into a uh, conversation, is that we do not remember them only because of our Orientalism. Of course, Orientalism and all of that and racism plays a role. But there seems to be another aspect to it, which is that science is never free of values, of social, religious, cultural values. And every scientific theory, uh, as abstract as it, as it may seem, incorporates some of those values. And in a way, Europeans needed to make those discoveries themselves in order to make sure that they, this knowledge would be applied according to European Christian <coughs> values. And so it's sort of an unconscious way of forgetting your ancestors. I don't think that you know, we're all such bad guys or these guys are so bad and they just you know, intentionally never uh, mentioned their heritage. Well, I, I agree completely with, uh, with you, Bettina, that uh, we tend to think of science as an international endeavor that crosses all cultural and linguistic disciplines. But certainly in the early 17th century, it was very much seen as part of religious discourse. And the whole point of proving the superiority of Western observation is to prove to the Chinese that they should uh, discard Islamic uh, calendars. There were Islamic um, astronomers working, for example, in the city of Nanjing. And in Beijing, there were many Muslims in the early 17th century. There still are mosque and Muslim communities in China. So the question, it seems to me, uh, is perhaps if I could pick up the buzzword from the first panel, globalization is not to think about the early 17th century as the first period of globalization, but rather we already have that in the 13th century with the Mongols. And it was under the Mongols that you also have perhaps greater spread of Islamic ideas in mm. different parts of the world. And even before the periods of the Mongols in early medieval times, during the height of Arabic science, there were uh, Persian and Arabic um, learning in China. But why sort of this particular wave sort of got interrupted? Why was it the early 17th century that would initiate, it seems to me, a kind of movement and panel? 
a movement and, and an energy that would continue into the 20th century to be, if you will, part of the roots of modernity. So that is a question that perhaps touches on the question of power. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, on the question of power, but also on the question of, I would say, because you need, I mean, you're right, the Islamic uh, world in the 10th century was a global empire already, 10th, 11th, 12th century. Um, when Europe was, you know, enjoying the dark Middle Ages, to use another buzzword. But what is important about this is that in order to practice this kind of global science, you need uh, educated people. And the rate of alphabetization, the rate of literacy in, in Western Europe at that time was in comparison to, I think, China and uh, definitely the Islamic empire, very low. So in order to be part of this world, Europe was not set up that way. Um, and it took another two, three hundred years um, to join this global community. And then I think another thing and that has to do with power, uh, we have to talk about religion and we have to talk about Christianity and we have to talk about Christianity's urge to believe in just one truth. Um, and not as in the Islamic world, you have several truths that, you know, are in debate. You don't believe in universal science. You, need, you believe in, in discussion. You believe in personal relations to teachers. Um, and then you debate. Uh, but the idea of a universal science, of a unified science, is a very Christian one. And what it means is that one, uh, for one, there can only be one truth. And it also means that theory becomes reality. Theory is supposed to become reality. And the material reality needs to sort of adapt to theory. So that's a very powerful concept. Uh, and do you know, just to talk about, yeah. So I mean, you're arguing that, I mean, it's part of this unity of knowledge in, West, in the Western tradition that gives us this special power, special mm -hmm. force. I should mention that all of the scientists, for example, in the Catholic tradition, they taught in, as in the faculty of natural philosophy, which was subordinate to theology. So there is a clear hierarchy mm -hmm. of the disciplines of knowledge, which perhaps give it a kind of, um, a kind of uh, synergy, a kind of coherence. Um, but one of the things it seems to me is that um, this drive for um, the higher truth can also have a very negative impact in our period, and I promised somebody in the audience that I would mention the Thirty Years' War in Europe. Uh, the dates are between 1618 and 1648, so covering a good part of our period. So you can say the positive things that come out of this European exploration, the cultural contact between China and Europe, also had its negative side in a prolonged religious warfare in Europe. Absolutely. I mean, I would even say that the, 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 the Christian concept of science to believe in, 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 in one truth and in universal science is, has had more negative than positive effects on the long run. And what it means, just to show you another of the, those slides that I brought, is uh, it is also 
uh, first of all, it creates the idea that the the subject, the observer, could be different, uh, could be divorced from the object uh, that this observer observer uh, seeks to 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 find the truth in. Um, this is a, a particularly European fantasy. It's an illusion, of course, but what it means is, is it, it means that the subject. Uh, assumes the, the position of God, a very powerful position, and it justifies the invasion of nature, which is usually thought of as, oh, here, it's just a couple of more images. Mm -hmm. eh. Okay, so this doesn't really work. Nature, uh, that's the European fantasy unveils itself, opens itself up for inspection of the gaze, opens itself up for penetration, um, uh, scientific penetration. So the, I, I think when we talk about power, when we talk about the idea of a universal science, we need to talk about gender too. And the female body came to stand in the Western tradition as the symbol for nature to be invaded by the, the subject, the male scientist. And just to show you one other image, uh, and then I'll be done. We do have a very different sex gender system in the Islamic world. The, 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 the female body does not, is not supposed to reveal itself. It's not uh, meant to open its, itself up to be penetrated by the scientific gaze. And so every society, in every society, science and gender are related. So if you have a different sex gender system, you will also have a different science. Well, I mean, what you show, it seems to me, Bettina, reminds me of uh, the earlier uh, engraving of America Respucci yes. and America of Gain and Naked Body. I should say that the Jesuits were not very much into penetrating female bodies. And, um, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a completely different story. Uh, <laughs> But certainly they did not expose any naked female uh, figures to the Chinese because that would have been shocking. But one of the things uh, about the, the absolute, but I think your larger point is about subjectivity. That is the, the confidence that your own subjectivity is a superior one, is an accurate one. And that is, I think, um, illustrated, and I think I'll end with this, by one story of Matteo Ricci as during his many years in China, making his social ascent from the south to the north. When he got to a provincial city, the city of Nanchang in southern China, he supposedly visited a very famous Taoist temple. And in this temple, um, some Chinese said, well, why don't you pay some respect to the Taoist god there? And Matteo Ricci said, no. And people were kind of angry with him. He's kind of like anti-social guy. Wouldn't say, like, you know, sometimes my son wouldn't say hello to people who come to the house. And, so it just, you have to say hello to everybody. No, I won't say any, res give respect to, to the Taoist God. And people were angry with him, and somebody who was with Richie said, explain, well, you know, he worships his, you know, Lord of Heaven, the Western God, so he doesn't do this. And then the Chinese said, oh, that's okay then. Then they left him alone. Now, but the interesting thing is really Richie's own comments about this whole experience. He says, there you see one of the great vices of the Chinese. They would just tolerate anything about religion. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I think our time is up. <laughs>